We were made for this. We were made for this. Whether it be close friends, perhaps you've played words with friends. Best friends, we find friends. We were made for friendship. We were made for this. But I guess you've noticed that friendship has fallen by the wayside in many ways. Later on in the sermon, we're going to look at some statistics that show how friendship has changed in Australia, in our society. We'll look at the numbers and the bare data, but but more than that, you've got a feeling, haven't you, that friendship is good, it's to be enjoyed, and yet we notice this, as much as friendships are fun, friendships can also be the place of pain. Friendships can bring pain, friendships falter, they fracture, they fail. This morning, as we look at gospel friendship from Philippians 2, I think it's good for us to ask this question. This is a letter to the Philippian church, it's a letter to our church, it's God's word to reforming church. And the question is this, what could friendship look like in our church? What could friendship look like among us? Here we see in the lives of two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus, gospel friendship. Now, we live in a day and age where it's easy to attach the word gospel to anything to make it sound good or better. So you don't just want a church, you want a gospel church. and That's a good thing. You, you don't just want to have a building, a gospel building or a gospel youth group or a gospel group, whatever it is, it's, it's easy to do that. But intentionally, I think as we look at this passage, this is a gospel-shaped friendship as different to any other friendship. There are lots of other types of friendships in our world, but a gospel friendship is distinctly different and we're going to see why and how to the way our world operates on friendship. Gospel friendship is different to default friendship. Paul, as he writes this letter to the Philippian church, which has become a book for us in the 66 books of the Bible, he writes into the story of friendship. He writes here of the story of two friends. And as he writes to this church, he's praying, he's, he's wanting them to continue, this church and our church, God is wanting our church to continue in joyful community. There are three aspects to our church here. We just take that from the great commandment, the great commission. Great commandment is we love God, we love people and make disciples of Jesus Christ, which can be summarized in three words. It's Christ, it's community, and it's compassion. Compassion for the lost. We love Christ first, but in the middle is community, and I think none of that works without community. A church is not a company with a CEO, the senior pastor type model where the, the CEO kind of organizes all the things to happen on the chessboard and for the company to grow. No, church is not like that. Church is not a franchise. Church is a family. It's a community of people, of relationships. And Paul is praying that the, the Philippians would continue in joyful community. It's a theme series for this sermon series in this book. And joyful community is a fruit of the gospel. It ought to be a result of the gospel, that there be joy in Jesus and joy in gathering with one another in this gospel friendship. And joyful community, I want to put it to you, is written into the story of humanity. It's meant to be, it's by design, since the beginning, since the book of Genesis. 
That's why we started briefly, and we'll start briefly by looking at Genesis 3. We're going to be in Genesis later in the year, God willing, but in Genesis 3, it's why we read this cross-reference passage, because this is where we see the story of friendship start. You remember Genesis 3, Chris read it earlier, and and it's easy to find, it's at the beginning, the word Genesis means beginning. But in Genesis 3, we could have read Genesis 1 to 3 for the sake of just reading this passage. It's a great passage that really ties together Genesis 1 and 2 and shows us the story of friendship. You see, in Genesis 3, we see where friendship in the beginning of that chapter was established, but then almost ends at the hands of humanity. Quick summary of Genesis 1 to 3. Genesis 1 is the big picture of God creating everything out of nothing. And then over six days, uh, part of his world being designed and created, we see it's delightful to God, it's good, and, and, and humanity is created, and that's the culmination of God then saying, it's very good. These image bearers that exist in the world, it's a very good thing. And then in Genesis 2, we zoom in to see humanity. We, we look at humanity in Genesis 2 with a, a particular focus. There's our ancient grandparents, Adam and Eve, and they are enjoying relationship. They're enjoying friendship. We see that humanity is not designed to be alone, but humanity is created for community. Now people say, yes, but of course you see loners in our world. But when you see a line, you can say there's something not right, there's something wrong, there's something, there's something deeply wrong when somehow individuals, humans, are kind of cordoned off from everyone else or live alone. There's something not right about that. You can sense that, can't you? And the reason you sense that is because deeply wired within us is we were created for community. And humanity is designed to delight in this. We're actually designed to delight in God. We're designed to delight in one another. We're designed to even delight in serving one another. You see, this morning, at the heart of friendship is service. It's actually looking out for one another, serving one another with love. But then, of course, in Genesis 3, Satan comes along and he has schemes. The devil plans to derail God's plans... And how does he do that? How does the devil attack God's creation? By attacking friendship. By attacking friendship with God and friendship with one another in this humanity that God has created. In Genesis 3 verse 8, we see in this verse where friendship begins and friendship ends and it all goes wrong, spiraling, out of control. Because in Genesis 3 verse 8, where humanity was, Adam and Eve together, and where they walked with God, here's what we hear. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And you notice what happens? Sin enters, this is what happens. The man and his wife hid themselves. Now, that little clause, they didn't just go, hey, you know, let's, let's go and hide over here. I've got a good spot in the cupboard. You know, we play hide-and-seek in our house, right? And that's what we do. And, and when Chloe, our, our four-year-old, works out that the older ones know where the good hiding spots is, she just goes with them or she goes with me. You, you know, you can't sort of say, no, you stay here, that's a good spot, and I'll go, no, she's got to be with you. This is not the garden situation. The clause shows us it literally is every person for themselves. They hide from each other. 
They go and find their own bush, their own tree, their own place to hide. They, they actually move away from each other and away from the presence of the Lord as he walks among the trees of the garden. We were created for community. But the sadness of this scene is the sin in our hearts damages our lives. We move away from one another, we move away from God, and even as God comes towards us by His grace, we would rather be away from the presence of the Lord. Sin ultimately sees humans turn in on ourselves. Sin is a sting that causes death. Sin is this. Sin is us saying to God, you're dead to me. But here is the sad reality, it's us who die. Cut us off from our life source and all that is good and everything goes bad. Sin so infects us and affects us and our relationship with God and one another where we were designed for delighting in community, we now die the death of dullness of individualism. We think, I will live for me and my life will be happy and it actually ends up in more sadness and dullness and boredom and death and we have no more delight. We buy the stuff and and live the life we think will make us happy and in the end we are dissatisfied and it ends in a nothingness. Friendships fall apart. It is death by self-centeredness. And this sad song is played every day. Sad songs say it so much, as Elton John would say. We sing that tune, it's stuck in our head, stuck in your head now too, isn't it? If you know the tune. It is stuck in our head. And probably what's also stuck in your head is your memory, your knowledge of all the friendships in your life that perhaps have failed. All the friendships that have fractured, all the friendships that have fallen apart, all the friendships that have required much, much, thought and perhaps have involved much pain. The fall from friendship with God and one another means we don't do friendship well. There's a new phrase now, we call it frenemies. You may have heard it. So we have frenemies now. So, you know, people I might relate to, but I don't really relate with and maybe even at a distance. Social work networking works on friendships, but social networking also highlights the highs and the lows of friendship. I once saw this app, actually, uh, not long ago. It was, it's an app you can get on your phone, and it's, it's a defriending app. And what it does, if you, if you load it onto your phone, what it does is it actually sorts out your friendships on your social media network, and it tells you which ones you should defriend if they like the band Nickelback. So, so if they like that band, you should defriend them. That's, that's what the app does. It's whole entire existence, right? I don't know who bothered to make such an app, but it exists. See, this is the sad thing about our news feeds, isn't it? You might see this. Sometimes you see, you know, your own friends, right? Have you been in this situation? You go on your news feed and there's a friend and you, you know, you saw them on Tuesday and they're writing, okay, everyone, I'm cleaning up my news feed. I'm cleaning up my friends list. I'm going to start defriending people that are not my real friend. And I start thinking, ooh, is that me? Will I, will I be here on Friday in their list? Do you wonder that? And sometimes they put things like, you need to you know, acknowledge this or like this or do something with this to not be defriended. Because that's the thing we do now, isn't it? But it's not just social media. We defriend people so easily. 
And it seems so clinical and yet it's painful. The reason defriending is painful is because it's not meant to be. It's a foreign thing in our world. But God comes to restore. And so this is 1C on the outline, if you're following along, gospel friendship restored in the gospel story. In Genesis 3.15, there's a verse there that theologians, scholars call the Proto-Euangelion, the first gospel, the Protos gospel. It's that glimmer of the gospel that happens in Genesis 3.15 because we often think, well, Genesis 3, that's where the the judgment, the curses come and, and then we're kind of waiting now for some good news to come afterwards. Actually, in the middle of judgment and curse, God is so gracious, so good, he brings us good news. And in Genesis 3.15, we read that whilst he says to the serpent, and this speaks to humanity, I'll put enmity between you and the woman. There'll be a war between Satan and humanity, and it will go for a long time, between your offspring and her offspring. But get this, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. There is a promise in Genesis 3.15. God promises that one day... Through humanity, through the offspring of humanity, there will come a serpent crusher. This is the kids' talk book we've been reading. The story of the serpent crusher by Kevin DeYoung. This is that story. Through humanity will come the solution to humanity's problem of sin and death. Through humanity, God will send the serpent crusher. The promise is way back in Genesis 3. God is going to restore friendship through humanity. I wonder who that offspring might be. It's not plural at this point, it's a he, it's a person, it's a him. Someone is coming. So that when we come to Philippians 2, with that backstory, we come to see a gospel story of two gospel friends, which is why it's not just attaching the word gospel to friendship. This kind of friendship, when you look at Timothy and Epaphroditus, only makes sense because of the gospel story. You've got to ask the question, why does this passage appear in the Bible? It's a good question to ask about any passage, really, to get the big idea, the meaning. Why does this passage appear? What is that focus of this passage? Why is Paul writing about these two guys and such a great testimony to their character? He's not just doing it because he likes them or they're likable guys. He's doing it to show what gospel friendship looks like. Paul puts on flesh what could too easily be theory for us or too easily ancient history. He shows the real-life examples what gospel friendship, what loving service of others looks like. Timothy and Epaphroditus are like, well, they're like our church. They want to make disciples. Hot tip. If you want to make disciples for Jesus, it starts by making friends. Making disciples is deeply relational. In his word, in the gospel. Now the context of these two paragraphs here with these two people, of course, is also very relational. I want you to notice this, that the reason that Paul writes this, this letter actually, the whole letter is in many ways, he's in prison in Rome and he has said in chapter 1 verse 12, 
He has said, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. That's what he says in 1 verse 12. So he wants them to know how it's going with him in the gospel. But then Paul also wants to know, how are they going in the gospel? So he wants them to know how he's going in despite of his suffering. But he knows that they will suffer many trials. And he says, how are you going? And so we have this communication. And so Epaphroditus is sent from the Philippians to Paul with gifts in this partnership in the gospel, and then Paul sends Epaphroditus back with this letter. And he wants the Philippians to know how, well, how they're going in the gospel too. And he speaks of Timothy, verse 19, Philippians 2.19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. So he's already got Epaphroditus, I want to send Timothy to you, Philippians. Now remember, this is, to send Timothy, it's not like you know, pop in the car and get on the road. This is a trip that would take weeks. But I want to send Timothy to you, Sue, that I may be cheered of news of you. And see what he says in verse 20. I have no one like him. Do you have a friend like that? Have you got a gospel friend? No one like him? Pretty big call, isn't it? And if you're, if you're kind of on the other friend list, you're thinking, well, that's... <laughs> That's not me, but Paul is not making comparison to all the other gospel friends. What he's showing is this. I've known like him compared to really other people in our world, even sometimes Christians, who can easily be about themselves. Look at verse 20. I've known like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. That's what sets Timothy distinctly apart. The word for concerned is the same word as anxious. Paul uses it in Philippians 4 verse 6. You know the phrase, whenever you're in a fix, Philippians 4 verse 6. In other words, don't be anxious about anything, be prayerful about everything. Right? Same word. Paul's saying, Philippia, uh, sorry, he's saying Timothy is genuinely anxious for your welfare. See, what's noteworthy about Timothy is, and it's written in the other parts of the New Testament, it's debated and scholars look into this. But I actually do think, I am convinced, that Timothy is the kind of person, as you look at the New Testament letters, who could easily be anxious about himself. I mean, here is a person, if you look at Timothy and you get a picture of him, here is a person who has had to face anxiety and lead in anxious situations. That's been part of his leadership. Paul has to write to the Corinthian church. We know about the Corinthian church. This is a church that's very prideful, very much they evaluate leaders, you know, give them a scorecard out of 10. He has to say this to the Corinthians. Get this, 1 Corinthians 16 verse 10. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you. Why have you got to write that? You know, when Timothy, why have you got to say that? For he is doing the work of the Lord as I am, so let no one despise him. Goodness, if you've got to say to a church, don't despise the leader I'm sending, there's a potential conflict situation he's walking into. Timothy faces anxieties. He's like you. He's like me. He's not necessarily and naturally wired to have others' persons' interests greater than himself. 
If I'm going to go into a difficult situation relationally and I'm trying to lead in that situation, I'm not going, yes, I love this stuff. I just love walking into conflict and sorting it out and leading it and people despising me. Don't you just love people despising you? Don't you just love that? Do you live for that? There's something wrong with you if you do, isn't there? I don't. And yet, if you're in the job of leading people, and leading them to Christ in a situation where people could despise you at the same time, would that, would that make you feel anxious? It makes me feel anxious. And so here is Paul with that context saying, but get this, where he could be anxious for himself, he's actually more anxious for you. He's concerned about how are you going? In your walk with Christ? How are you going in the gospel? How are you going in your suffering? That's what Timothy's concerned about. That's what sets him apart. Paul says, verse 21, they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, you read that, you go, that's the world, isn't it? I get that. That's Genesis 3 all over again. Paul is just highlighting how that is our natural state, yes. We know that selfishness plagues the world. It's reaching pandemic levels. And yet, selfishness is not far from any one of us. Paul has to write in this letter, he says in Philippians 1.15, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Paul has to write, some people even preach Christ out of selfish motivation. Now, why they would do that ought to be beyond us, but we know it happens. But not Timothy, because Jesus has changed everything for Timothy. And how has Jesus changed everything for Timothy? Because for those who feel anxious, Jesus is the one who has conquered death and says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And Timothy has shown that he has a Christ-like character, a heart of service like Christ. Paul writes like a son with a father. It's deeply relational. Timothy doesn't do this because it's his job. Whilst it is, in a sense, it's his role, it's his job. and He doesn't do it. It's, it's his passion to serve people, to, to, to be anxious for people. That's why he does it. That's what sets him apart as a leader. Others seek their own interests, not the interests of Jesus Christ. What are the interests of Jesus Christ? Like, What is Jesus Christ really interested in? Is Jesus Christ interested in us building a really impressive church? Is Jesus Christ interested in us being slick or looking good or being influencers? Is Jesus Christ interested in my influence? No. I mean, read the Bible. He's not. What is Jesus Christ interested in? He's interested of those in Christ people, others. He's interested in us being interested in one another. And when Paul sends Timothy, get this, Timothy is mentioned in Paul's letters. He's valuable to Paul. 
because Paul loves this guy. He's deeply part of Paul's work, deeply personally involved, and so Paul sends his best. It's a hazardous journey to get to Philippi. Paul sends the guy who, who's laying his life down, who is such a kind of a fellow colleague and servant, he sends Timothy. This is not leadership delegation. It's not like the company rep, you know, well, look, who can we send? Um, well, Timothy, he's fairly dispensable. Like, if we lose him, that's going to be okay. If Paul loses Timothy, it's a big deal. He sends someone who has a personal relationship with and a real-time commitment involved in. He sends Timothy. And Timothy goes because he's that kind of guy. This is a profile picture. This is a profile picture of gospel friendship. And then we see Epaphroditus. Verse 25. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother. Look at the list of things Paul says about him. Verse 25. My brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. Epaphroditus is from Philippi. And even we see about him, Epaphroditus is so anxious for, so loves those at Philippi, he's willing to die for them. We don't exactly know the details, but it seems he gets really sick. Hazardous journey. Perhaps he gets the ancient form of COVID or whatever. He gets really sick. He gets the flu. He gets really, really sick. But he's determined to serve others, even in his sickness. Because notice this, verse 26. For he has been longing for you all, and Epaphroditus gets distressed. Why is he distressed in verse 26? Is he distressed? I'm, I'm really sick, and I might die. I'm a, bit, I'm a bit concerned about it. That's not why he's distressed, is it? Why is Epaphroditus distressed? Because you heard he was ill. He's distressed that they're worried about him. What kind of person is... Gets, he's the one that's sick and nearly dying, but he's more concerned that they're worried about him. In verse 28, Paul says of this anxious concern here again. Here is a person... Epaphroditus, who was wrapped up with concern for others, even in his own sickness and suffering. We know what it's like to have a concern for ourselves, don't we? We feel that every day. We know what it's like to have an anxiousness for oneself, but here we see an anxious concern for others in the lives of these two men. In verse 29, Paul says, So when you see him again, receive him in the Lord with all joy and honour such men. Think on this. Epaphroditus gets sick somehow on the journey or somehow in his service to the Philippians. How do they find out about that sickness? They didn't have Insta. They didn't have Facebook. They didn't have some sort of advanced phone call. They weren't able to see it on their scroll feed first. They weren't going like, hey, um, you know, kind of 
Saturday night, nothing else to do, so sit there on social media. Oh, have you seen that Epaphroditus is sick? Yeah, I saw that he's nearly died. Ah, we should pray for him. Yeah, let's do that one day. Now, they're not doing that. How do they find out that Epaphroditus nearly died for the service of the gospel? In the very letter he brings. So he arrives. He doesn't come with a kind of like, hey guys, I nearly died for this. You've got to really like me. I've got some street cred around here. No. He doesn't mention it. It's Paul that has to say it. He comes with this letter and they find out this is the kind of person who is friends with this church. He's from this church and this is the shape of gospel friendship here. That he lays life down for them that way. These are followers of Christ who are Christ-like in their friendships. Friends, what could friendship look like at our church here? Well, you sit on your outline, this is where we finish. The heading of this is this. Here's the summary statement. We are saved for gospel friendship of loving service to others. That's what we're saved for. Saved for gospel friendship. So yes, we're saved from our sin, death and judgment. Yes, we're saved for Christ, with Christ, forever. But the now, here and now, what, what are we doing in church? We are saved for gospel friendship of loving service for others. When you look at the church, and as much as we get a, a bad rap in the world, because the world doesn't really understand the church, I think we're some sort of organisation like Rotary or something. No, we're different. I think we're kind of like a company with a, a board and a seat. No, we're different. They kind of miss when you're looking at the church. What are you actually looking at? You're looking at a new humanity. The church is an alternative, new and wonderful humanity to the old broken one that lives in dullness. The church is this beautiful new people of God. Jesus is handcrafting us into his image to be loved by him, to love him and be like him, especially in our friendships, which is why this is gospel friendships. Earlier this year, we're in John's gospel. So John's biography of Jesus, the good news of Jesus. And we'll be finishing John's gospel at the start of next year. So first half we did, first term, second half of John's gospel next year as a preview. In John 15... Jesus says this, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And then he says, You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants. Now, this is interesting. Jesus says, You're my friends. He lays his life down for his friends. And then he says, no longer do I call you servants. Why? Why doesn't he call us servants anymore? Why? For the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends. For all I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. In other words, this. Jesus is saying, you're my friends. I'll lay my life down for you. And how do we now relate? We relate closely. He speaks to us from his word. He's with us to the end. He'll never forsake us. 
We get to have his ear in prayer. We're friends. We're not just distant servants. We're not working for the company. We're not working for Heavenly Incorporated. We are, we are friends with the Lord of the universe. We're deeply woven together in friendship, which shapes a church now. It's Jesus who lays his life down for his friends on the cross. The good news of Jesus, the gospel, is that where we were once enemies of God, we are now friends with God, which also means now friends with one another. See, selfishness, which is our natural position, is the death of us. But now, friendship with God means selflessness brings life. Actually serving others is a delight. Sometimes I think we feel like we've got to convince people to, to serve one another, but I don't think just putting them on the roster is how we get to serve. Actually viewing each other differently, viewing each other as friends, that we, we actually get to serve one another is a delightful thing. It's actually what we're designed for. When you serve someone else, there's a joy that comes out of that. You can't manufacture and you can't get any other way. Why? Because that's the way God's designed it. See, where sin would push us away, what does the gospel do? The gospel gets us together. Sin scatters us, the gospel gathers us. It's why we say here at Reforming Church, we don't use the phrase gathered worship and scattered worship. I've heard it before, I, I disagree. It's not gathered worship and scattered worship during the week. Sin scatters us, it's gathered worship and sent worship. We're sent into our households. We're sent into family worship during the week every day. We're sent into daily worship in the way we love our neighbours in our work. We're sent into worship in the way that we would pray and rely upon God in everything. We're sent into worship and we regather again to encourage one another and equip one another and give each other a hug on a cold day and warm each other up. We're gathered in worship of God and we're sent in worship. That's what the gospel does. It gathers us. We actually want to gather we don't come to church because, oh, it's Sunday, I've got to come to church. We come to church because I want to gather with people that belong to God. Because here's the thing about the friendship that we now have. If Jesus is your best friend, which he is if you know his love, if Jesus is your best friend, guess what? He's also my best friend. Which means we've got the same best friend and we get to be best friends too. And we get to serve one another. The Son of Man, Mark 10, 45, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. This is us now. We are saved for gospel friendship of loving service for others. I was saying to our group the other night, or a few nights ago, um, on Fridays, my day off, I like to read. And someone said... Don't you read for a job? I'm like, yes, I do, but I read other things that are not, you know, I read, I read day off reading. I have day off books and I have non-day off books and they exist on my shelves. Currently, I'm reading for my day off a book on rugby. Um, I do this from time to time. Um, the particular book I'm reading at the moment is a book called Legacy by James Kerr. It's a book on all blacks and their culture. 
I'm finding it fascinating. I'm finding it fascinating for the, every time I read the next page, I'm thinking about church culture. And so I haven't finished it yet, so maybe there's more rugby illustrations to come in all the sermons for the next term. And I apologise if you have no interest, but hear me out. I mean, well, here's, here's what I noticed recently. You may have heard of the All Blacks, right? So there's this country called New Zealand. It's, it's a little bit that way. Jokes. My grandfather was from New Zealand, right? So I got some New Zealand blood. But New Zealand, you know, they've got sheep and they've got lots of wonderful things, um, which I'm sure exist. But the big thing for New Zealand is, is rugby. It's their thing. Of course, they've dominated the rugby scene around the world for, for decades. The All Blacks are famous. The jersey, the history. YouTube it later if you want. It's fascinating. Documentaries on the All Blacks. It's, it's ingrained in who they are. I'm reading this book on legacy, it's called Legacy by James Kerr. James Kerr did an analysis on the All Blacks and he says this. The All Blacks that had been winning and winning and winning in the early 2000s had a crisis. They had a cultural crisis. They'd been a winning team. They went to South Africa and they lost a major game. And the players fell apart socially, culturally. And the leadership team got together and realised the culture of the All Blacks had become toxic, especially off the field, and they needed to change. And so this is what they did. Remember, this is a winning team. This is not a team that's losing. How are we going to start winning? This is a winning team that loses one game, and they realised the problem was not the skill set. The problem was the team culture, and this is what they did. They changed the way they picked players. So in the past, they would have watched the videos, watched the team and go, oh, that, that person scored a try, that person, you know, um, they had some individual flair. They stopped doing that. They didn't pick the most talented individuals. Instead, they used different metrics to back their intuition. And here's what the metrics are. They measured across a game how many times a player was unselfish. They counted how many times that player would rather pass the ball to someone else, would rather serve someone else than score themselves. They measured that and they picked those ones for the team. They saw the team culture change. They selected players on a sacrificial mindset and not simply on their skills. They actually intentionally selected players on their character, on and off the field. And the results speak for themselves. It changed the team culture. It actually extended even to how they finished in the sheds after a game. The the captain would pick up a broom and sweep the sheds. They all have a culture of cleaning up after themselves. They all sweep the sheds. They all stay. They all serve one another. Now, you don't have to know rugby to mean that's significant. These are high-profile world, and they actually would rather serve others. And that's the team culture the All Blacks got. Friends, imagine how much more a church could display that. That's a rugby team. I love rugby, but let me just say... That's just a rugby team. 
what about the new humanity that's a church? How much more could a church be well positioned to display that kind of friendship, that kind of friendship of service to the world? That's who we are now. Gospel friendship of loving service to others means a few things. I think it means for us, we think about what that means for your life, but here's a few examples. Dads, I'm going to to say this as a dad who needs this myself. I need to hear these words preached to my heart, dads and mums. But do you know that you have little disciples watching you? They are constantly watching you. They're imitating you even. But what they're watching is this. What does dad think is important in life? Because when I grow up, I'll think that's important too. Do they see dads seeing gospel friendships that you'd stay at church and talk with people and love people and serve people? Do they see week in, week out, that's what's important to dad? That's what's important to mum? That they would actually serve others? Do they see... Serving others, serving our friends, lights up dad? Or does watching YouTube videos on, I don't know, fish running into a wall light up dad? What lights dad up? Is it making money? Or is it making disciples, making friends? Do you see the opportunities you have in a church to have that culture in your family? Perhaps your kids can watch you serve. Perhaps they can serve with you. Gospel friendships, loving service to others means also single friends, teenagers, youth. If you're a single person, a teenager, a youth, everyone as well, we fit into this category too, but for you particularly, you live in a rapidly changing generation. But now that Jesus changes everything, you actually get to be part of a compelling community to those around you. I recently read this. This was published on the 7th of June this year. So it's this month. It's a couple of weeks ago. This is published by Dr. Andrew Lee, Assistant Minister for Competition, Charities and Treasury. He said this in a, in a speech. We have seen a drop in volunteering rate in Australia from 35% at the start of the millennium, so the year 2000. We've seen a drop of from 35%, it's now down to 25%. In the 1950s, half the population used to regularly attend a religious service, now that's down to a seventh. In the 1980s, union membership was half the workforce, now it's down to a seventh. Australians are less likely to participate in team sports compared to the mid-1980s, and get this, here's the kicker. Australians have half as many close friends and know half as many of their neighbours. We have an opportunity to see this different. We have an opportunity with a compelling community we have for our friends to meet our gospel friends. Gospel friendships of loving service to others changes how we serve one another on a roster even. I think we can look at a roster and go, groan, I'm on the roster. When actually when you look at a roster, what is a roster really? Roster is an opportunity. It's a window into life. It's an invitation to love. It's an invitation to be a friend and serve. 
Gospel friendship of loving service to others changes our church structures. It's why we have the seating the way we do. It's why we have couches and chairs and we have a cafe to foster community and talking with one another. There's every reason in the world you could stay and talk with morning tea coming. Gospel friendship of loving service to others shapes our culture. We pray because we want to become a church that is more like Jesus. Gospel friendship of loving service shapes the way we soul care for one another. When someone expresses they're going through some suffering, we listen and we pray for them and we ask them again how they're going and we love them and we serve them. We provide meals with a prayerful, patient love for others. We're saved for gospel friendship or loving service for others. And it's a delight. It's a joy. And it's all because of Jesus, our friend. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word to us and we pray that this would so settle in our hearts and so move us to reshape, reform our friendships. Where friendships are fractured and broken, we pray that knowing the forgiveness and the new friendship we have with you through Christ would shape how we forgive others and form new friendships too. Make our friendships grace-based, gospel-filled. Make this real among us. We pray for this kind of friendship, this gospel friendship, that would be real here and really extend to reach many others that need this friendship too. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.